Hello, everybody, and welcome to Kissing the Cod, All Things Gold. We have a very special guest today, uh, Mr. Peter Dimmel. Peter, welcome. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. I, I'm honored to have you here today for a, a nice conversation. And uh, you've got quite uh, an illustrious career. Um, and I, I don't know where to start. So maybe um, let's just start at the beginning. You were born uh, in the United Kingdom. That's correct. Yes, uh, my dad, my mom was a war bride, born in 1946, just after the war, and uh, went ten, five times back and forth across the Atlantic on by ocean liner before I was 10. So, and subsequent to that, we, were, we lived in Canada the rest of the time. And uh, uh, my dad was in the army. Uh, after the war, he got out, then he got back in again. Uh, he became an, a, a sergeant, a recruiting sergeant, actually, in Ontario, and happened to pass through Bancroft a lot. And uh, Bancroft is a mineral capital of Canada. Uh, he started bringing, he, I had found a, I'd found a small quartz crystal that my grandfather, I guess, had had uh, from the Epsom Downs in the UK. And I got intrigued with that. And my dad started bringing me back. Uh, things from Bancroft, rocks, minerals, uh, pretty well everything. And uh, I, that's how I started. I, from then on, I wanted to be a geologist. Wow. So your dad was uh, a sergeant in, in, yeah. the, in World yes, War II? he was a, what they call a recruiting sergeant. He would be the guy that would go around to the various communities, usually talk to the, uh, the barbers at that time, people that knew the people that were applying to, to join the armed forces. Interesting. My my great grandfather was a sergeant. Uh, World War One, World War Two, uh, served in the Queen's Guard, um, and I remember the stories when I was young about uh, the trips across the ocean or or the pond. Right? <laughs> the pond. <yeah. laughs> so, what's it like being on an ocean liner now? Now we're so you know we complain with an eight hour flight that the seats are too un uncomfortable. But what's it like on an ocean liner? Well, uh, at that particular time, it, I think it was about a week to get from, uh, from the UK to uh, somewhere in Canada. It could be Montreal, it could be Halifax, et cetera. And, uh, and the reason we went back was my mother, as I say, was born in the UK. She got homesick. So we went back twice, once when dad went to the UK to uh, reassign and once when he went to Germany. So he, during the war, he was actually an anti-aircraft gunner on the coast, on the uh, east coast of, uh, of uh, the UK. And uh, that's what he did. He was in the, in the artillery at the time. Where, where on the east coast? Just I, I... Uh, I think he met my wife somewhere in the Clacton area, Clacton-on-Sea in Essex. And that's where I was born. Okay. My, um, my father-in-law uh, was a navigator. Uh, on a B-17, and he was, wow. he was based out of the UK, and uh, yeah, I've seen a lot of amazing pictures and met a lot of amazing veterans over the years. Oh, yeah, I, I, I think the interesting thing about it is, is that a lot of the people that were in the war, now Dad, Dad didn't really see much of the, uh, I mean, they were shooting at the planes, but the planes weren't, weren't shooting back at them in a lot of cases. Uh, but I think, you know, people during the war, I don't think most of us could really believe, really understand what they went through. We're seeing a lot of these things now, of course, with what's going on in Ukraine. Um, and I think it's, it's really bothering most of us. It's uh, just seeing these things going on, seeing how 
in inhumane people can be to each other. Yeah, yeah. Um, we ended up sponsoring um, bomber reunions for the for the B seventeen, and as as time went on, incorporated other groups because there's fewer and fewer. And very very fortunate to hear some stories, and I, I think my favorite one was um, there was they were hit. The plane was hit. They had to uh, evacuate. And the gentleman from the U.S. Um, was uh, landed in a farmer's field in Germany and uh, broke his leg. And the family took him in and they hit him uh, for the remainder of the war because they knew what would happen if they turned him in. And so they kept him there and healed up his leg and fed him. And when the war ended, they uh, they helped him get home. Um, in all that inhumanity, there's. Yes, sir. There, uh, that's right. There always is. It's just unfortunate that a lot of the other is what comes through in, in a lot of people during times like that, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you ended up in Bancroft? No, I never. I didn't end up in Bancroft. That was where I got yeah. my walks from. Yes. <laughs> Dad, Dad passed through there. I was living in southern Ontario, a place called Deseronto, which is in, be in between Kingston, Kingston and Belleville on the Bay of Quinte, which mm -hmm. is an offshoot of, the, of Lake Ontario. And uh, I went to four high schools because dad moved around a lot. Uh, Deseronto, Kingston, Fredericton, and then Camp Borden, north of Toronto. <laughs> so I, I had a, I, I, as, I, as I say to be, I really, I know very few people that I actually went to high school with because I moved around too much and, of course, didn't keep in touch. So, uh, but, you know, it, but that sort of thing, it makes you who you are. Uh, I know when I went to Kingston, I was very in, introverted. I took part in very little. Uh, when I went to Fredericton, I made a conscious decision because uh, I did 11 and grade 11 and 12 there, conscious decision that I had to become more outgoing. And I think that uh, getting involved with things like Glee Club, uh, High Y at the time, a bunch of different situations like that, that I, I, I got over my shyness. I became... I guess a lot of what I am now today, because I'm, I'm certainly not introverted anymore. And most people who know me will know that I tend to speak up probably too much. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, you have been um, quite involved in the mining industry as well. And we'll get into all of the, the stuff in Newfoundland and the amazing things you've done. But one thing that struck me about your career is how involved you are in so many organizations over the years and you know why so much um, you've been incredibly busy pdac canadian institute of mines uh mining hall of fame uh newfoundland and labrador chamber of mines so much well, I guess, you know, I've always thought that, you know, if, if you believe in what you're doing, if you believe in the industry that you're working in, you have to try and do the best you can to make that industry the best it can be. Uh, and, and that means working with, with other, other industry groups. It means working with governments a lot. And it also means uh, speaking up for people that otherwise might not might not uh, get their their concerns uh, uh, put forward. Uh, I've always considered myself a prospecting geologist. I've worked with prospectors all my life, all my life, and and a lot of the success I've had have been related to to the prospectors I've worked with. Um, guys like Alan Alan uh, Ted Keats originally with Naranda. Uh, 
Uh, in New Brunswick, I worked with guys like George Murphy um, and a lot of the other New Brunswick prospectors in there. And, and I've always seen this, the success that companies have when they work with prospectors, but it's a combined thing. It's prospectors and geologists working together. Um, I, I've, I, when when I, teach, I taught prospecting courses too for the government here for quite a while, again, volunteer type thing. But uh, one of the things I always said to, to prospectors, I said, you guys have such a, an advantage over us geologists. I said, you don't know anything. And they look at me and they go, you know, and I said, well, the, the, you can go in places that we would never go because we know there's nothing there. And then you guys go in and find something. And I said, because we're so smart, we go in and explain why it's there. But we don't find it. You know, that's that's the bottom. We, we Bottom line is, is it the, the prospectors are the guys that go they, they, they have ideas, they look at the data, they do different things. And uh, Boise's Bay is a good example. Nobody was looking in Labrador because you couldn't find a copper nickel deposit in Labrador. It just wasn't the right environment, you know? So, you know, wow. but pro two prospectors found it. <laughs> it was just a big rusty hill on the, on, on the, on the side of Boise's Bay, right? <laughs> wow. What, what were the prospectors that found Boise's Bay? Uh, Al Chislett and Chris Verbisky. Okay. And uh, and again, they were up there looking for uh, diamonds. That's what they were. That's why the, the company that made discoveries called Diamond Fields, uh, one of uh, one of our uh, one of our major major companies that have been around here. Um, they uh, they they were looking for diamonds, but because they're prospectors, they kept their eyes open. And Boise's Bay, the Discovery Hill, it's called Discovery Hill for a reason, was a big rusty Gossen zone. Uh, that incidentally had been noted by Bruce Ryan, who works with the, uh, the Newfoundland government. He'd, he had a sample of that Gossen, I think, in 1986 on display at the Newfoundland uh, open house. And nobody really paid any attention to it. But the guys went in there in 93, 92, 93, and uh, flying over in a helicopter one day, spotted it and said, we'll come back and have a look at that later. And when they came back, they thought they'd found a copper deposit. Because they, they went down through the Gossen, which is the iron oxide on top, and uh, they found the uh, they found calcopyrite first, and they saw other stuff which looked like pyrotite, but it was turned out to be pyrotite and pentlandite, which is the nickel nickel sulfide. So you know it, it it's 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 you keep your eyes open. That's what prospectors do, and that's how they find things. Yeah, look for look for something that doesn't belong. Well, that's part of it, yeah. But you know, rusty any any iron. Most of the things that we do, any of our minerals, usually have iron associated with them, and iron rusts. And and so you look for gossens. That's a, one of the first things you did. Now, having said that, I spent next year or so, I guess after that, off and on, uh, working with companies in Labrador, looking for more of these rusty zones. And we found lots of rusty zones. We just didn't find any nickel, <laughs> so or copper. <laughs> Okay. So explain how you, how do you explain the difference between a prospector and a geologist? Well, a geologist, first of all, has had, you know, four or five years of uh, university training in not only, not only geology, but there's so many facets of geology. There's paleontology, which is the, the fossils and things, uh, structural geology, which gives you an idea of you know, structure and how folds happen and, and the sort of situation you need for those type of things. Mineralogy, the type of minerals you're seeing. 
what they mean. That's what that's how I got into geology. When I was telling you as a rock collector, I became as such an amateur mineralogist. Uh, I can I I'm still very good at identifying minerals, and that's because I I I studied that sort of thing when I was uh, when I was a kid. I, I read, you know, I got books on minerals, because you can get Powell's Field Guide to, to Rocks and Minerals, which is still a, a standard for anybody in the, uh, that, that's, uh, that's, uh, that is in the mineral, you know, looking at minerals and collecting minerals and that sort of thing. Um, so, and then uh, sedimentology, uh, how things form, uh, all, all of these things fit together and more, I guess, more to the point, what we study is economic geology. And that's putting most of these things together, uh, the other facets of it, and then using those, uh, tying in geophysics, tying in geochemistry and, and these things. And they call it geochemistry, geophysics, et cetera, because that's what we use to find the deposits. And it's a matter of putting those all together. Now, prospectors uh, don't have that training. They, most, if, in most cases, they're either self-taught or they've taken a one or two week course. And so you know what type of thing you can get a good basic for it. But again, prospectors are prospectors to me are made uh, in a lot of cases. They're not necessarily born. They go out, they start breaking rock and looking at it, seeing what's going on. Why does this look different? You just said that. Why are things different? And I, and I say that when I when I involved in the prospecting course, if you've got all red rocks and all of a sudden you see a green one, why is it green? It's usually green if they're red because they're oxidized and they have iron. The iron's oxidized. And when it's green, it's usually because it's reduced. And when you get reduction, the fluids that, are, that cause that can carry gold, silver, uh, and other minerals. And that's 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 what happens to it. Right? So that's how you use use those things. So prospectors can do it, but uh, they do it on a much simpler level, if you want to call it. So, Mineral exploration to me is is like a uh, it, it's like a detective story. You you use the clues that you can pick up from all of those facets, from the government data, from work you've done yourself in geochemistry, work you've done in geophysics. If you have, uh, it look going underground, looking at the structure, uh, the Appleton Fault Zone, for example, which is Newfound Gold's main one. It it, it it's interesting because it. It was never really known. Uh, and I, I we haven't got into my, my career yet, but I worked out of Gander, Newfoundland, from 1969 to 1982. Wow. <laughs> and every, every week we would leave Gander, we would leave on a Monday and we would go west. So we would go right across the Appleton Fault Zone. But we did never thought about it because we weren't looking for gold, number one. But also, we we it, it didn't it didn't mean anything to us at the time, right? So, but recognizing that that was a fault, and it nobody it wasn't on the map was a fault. It's interesting because the grub line was known, and some of these other ones that are now you know the the main ones that people are looking at. But the Appleton Fault Zone really was not shown as a fault structure, even though it was very obvious if you looked at it topographically. It had two long linear ponds in it. Gander River came along, followed it. You can, you can actually trace it right down to Gander Lake. And as far as, far as we know, and as far as Newfound Gold is saying, you can actually trace it to the south of the lake. So of Gander Lake, that is. So, you know, it's, it's recognizing these things, using those clues and putting them together. 
So I, I want to ask the question, you don't have to answer it. Who's discovered more mines, prospectors or geologists? I'd say in Newfoundland, prospectors, much more, many more. I, you just go through them. Uh, Maddie Mitchell was the one who discovered the Buckins deposit. It wasn't, you know, he, he got a bag of flour as, as a reward, right? Um, Al Keats uh, has found, been involved with, <laughs> and I've been involved with him through most of these too, uh, Point Leamington deposit, which is probably the largest massive sulfide deposit in the island of Newfoundland. Uh, I, I estimate at 30 to 40 million tons. It's still not a mine. It was found in 1971. Wow. And uh, I happened again, I was working with Naranda at the time, and Al found a massive sulfide boulder about a quarter mile away from a, uh, a Phelps Dodge Airborne uh, anomaly that had been uh, that had been flown in 1967, but they'd done a quick follow-up but hadn't done anything with it. And I accompanied Al in to look at that area. Uh, we it was Mafic Volcanics in contact with Felsic Volcanics uh, with some black shale and stuff along the contact. But the, uh, the uh, massive sulfide had float, had fragments of the rhyolite, the rhyolitic rocks in them. There were out outcrops of that same mineral and that airborne was right there. I'd say about a, a month to two months after Al found that boulder, when he was, yeah, he was a stream set, sediment sampling was what he was doing. He didn't even have an ax, he was using rocks to break. The, that's how he brought out a chunk of it. Anyway. <laughs> A month later, we drilled it, and we got 240 feet of massive sulfides in the first hole. So it's still not a mine, mainly because it's very, very difficult. It's a very fine grain. Uh, it's one. It was about one percent copper, and that, that 240 feet was about one uh, percent copper. There is a zinc zone there that's probably three or four million tons. So people are still working on it, obviously. But that was 1971. Wow. Tally pond. He tally Al found a boulder outside the camp. A bulldozer pushed it over the bank, and it was massive calcopyrite this time, about this big. <laughs> Subsequently to that, we found the boundary deposit. Uh, this is all Naranda stuff, right? Yeah. And we found the boundary deposit. And in 1986 or 87, they actually drilled the uh, the main uh, uh, duck pond deposit. But our second drill hole in that area was was actually, and again, I was on the drill and all this stuff. So <laughs> this stuff, I was on the sh shores of duck pond. And we hit stringer mineralization then. So we always knew there was something around there. We just didn't quite know where it was. And it was, again, combination. Wayne Reed did some downhole geophysics, a geologist. And, and he said, look, alterations increasing downhole on a hole that I had drilled. And uh, I moved on to New Brunswick, I think, at that time. Just did some work. And the subsequent another geologist extended that hole on down into the mass into the massive sulfides. That's how they found that one. So... Wow. Well, it goes on. And, uh, you know, most of these things are found like that, you know. Uh, other ones are found by geochemistry, like Daniels Harbor, and the zinc mine there and stuff. But, yeah, it, I, can, I mean, I could go on. But anyway. <laughs> well, I'm, just, I'm, I'm fascinated by prospectors, um, the, the personality, um, the, the optimism, the, the, the combination of skills that they've had to acquire and, and, and just a, something, they can see something, right? Like they're just, they're, uh, like you say, they're made, but they're, but they're fascinating to me. Yeah, well, they are. And, and, and they're the, I, I, I'm, I'll just tell you another story about Al. And this is during the voice. This is during the Tally Pond, Duck Pond stuff. Again, we were coming back. We've been doing some geophysics 
on the uh, east side of Talipond and walking along the shore. And Al said, just a minute, he said, look, he said, the water's real low. He said, I've been looking at a boulder I, for the last two or three years. And it's always been in too deep water. Couldn't get, I think I can get out to it today. And he goes walking out like that. And he goes, whack with the hammer. He comes in, he says, yeah, it's massive sulfides. <laughs> I mean, we'd all walk by it, but you know, no, it just, it, you just, it, it just, a, it's like a sixth sense almost. Right? Yeah. And I, I look at it, and I mean, I actually, I'm, I'm not a bad prospector myself, mainly because I've, I've watched what these guys do, and 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 you, and the biggest thing they do is they break rock. You can't see what's going on. And it's Newfoundland, especially because you've got a lot of iron manganese in the streams and stuff, and that's one of the best places to prospect. And you're not going to do it without breaking rock as you go, you know. So. Wow. Well, I want to get into the whole story, but first. We, we should talk about your career. Um, <laughs> we just had that kind of going, which I, which I love. But I understand that um, initially your interest in what became a, a career in geology started with uh, your dad and his contacts with uh, barbers. There was a particular well, barber who brought some rocks for you. Yeah, well, the barbers in Bancroft, a lot of the people in there were, were uh, amateur mineralogists and rock collectors, whatever you want to call them. And one of them was one of the, the main barbers in, in Bancroft at the time. So he was a guy that my dad used to go see. So, uh, and dad mentioned one time, I guess, look, my son's interested in rocks. Said, well, so he started, like, like most people do when they're rock collectors, they have extra specimens. They say, well, here, you take some of these, you know, and they were neat things. They were storolite crystals. They were kyanite crystals. They were, you know, all of these things that you wouldn't necessarily see down in Southern, uh, Southern Ontario. But as you get up into Northern Ontario, you get in a place like Bancroft, especially, I mean, it's known, it's almost as good as as, as the, some of the best places in the world for for mineral specimens so I, I ended up with quite a collection I didn't really have in any fancy way but it just inspired me because I got so interested in it wow. and then and then you ended up um, going to university and studying geology yes that's correct yeah I went to UNB in Fredericton and uh, uh, four-year degree uh, major in geology and uh, just went on from there. Uh, in uh, second year, I, first year, I worked with the geological uh, with the geology department at uh, UNB. We did a little bit of field work out in Grand Manan Island in, Bay of, in the Bay of Fundy, uh, and I did a lot of work with the in the lab actually at uh, at UNB. Second year, I worked with the Geological Survey of Canada, doing uh, regional mapping in central uh, New Brunswick. What they called the McKendrick Lake Map Sheet. Uh, and that actually was quite interesting. Most we went for days sometimes without seeing rocks. And uh, this is pre GPS, of course. So we just go on a compass course. And most of the time we didn't know where we were, but we knew how to get out. So <laughs> we go on a compass course. I think the longest one we did, we do six kilometers in and then a kilometer along a stream and then six kilometers out and then came from, went in from a road, came out from a road. And, and except for the time we were on the stream or at the road, we really didn't know where we were. I mean, we, cause we were pacing and flagging and just waiting till we hit this, this stream. Third year I had uh, six job offers. And uh, one of them was uh, one, the first one was offered was McIntyre Porcupine. Another company doesn't exist anymore uh, in uh, Newfoundland. Uh, 
they were doing a drill program following up an airborne survey, a series of airborne surveys in central Newfoundland. Uh, and that's the one I took, I would, but I was also offered jobs with INCO, oh, I forget, Iron Ore Company of Canada, anyway, whatever, anyway. The one I took was the lowest paid because <laughs> it was the first I was offered. Uh, anyway, I, but it, it got me into Newfoundland, which is quite interesting, and central Newfoundland, so I got to know it. Next year, when I got out, I was offered two jobs. When I, at the end of uh, 1969, I was offered two jobs, one with Naranda, one with INCO. Inco would have been in Sudbury uh, during the winter and summertime. I'd be uh, out doing field work somewhere. Noranda was in Newfoundland, Gander, Newfoundland. They were establishing an office there. Uh, Ron Hawks, uh, who had been in the Bathurst office, was was put over there, and he was putting a group together. So he said, "Oh, you've been to Newfoundland, yeah? And what do you think?" I said, "Well, yeah, I enjoy it." So he offered me a job. He said, "Well, we'll see how it goes over the summer." Anyway, seventeen years later. They got rid of me, but it was 17 years, 17 years of quite interesting stuff all in Newfoundland. And, uh, and, so, and yeah. Noranda um, did a lot of amazing initial work uh, that's provided a lot of the base that people are following up now. Correct? Yes, that's correct. Yep. Yep. Very, and, very good. Yep. But the, the, the problem with Naranda, and it, it, it was always, to me, it was always too bureaucratic, and it became more bureaucratic as time went on. Uh, they started worrying too much about budgets. Uh, we had uh, one, one uh, boss at, at Naranda, I won't mention his name, uh, but when he took over, he just decided that the budgets, uh, and I, and, but at that time, just to put it in perspective, uh, we had 21 districts across the country. This is from east to west, 21 districts, four regions, okay? We had uh, each district had a district geologist and one or most times two or maybe more project geologists. So just put those together. That's, you're probably talking, and in each district had a manager and assistant manager. So you add up all those things, you've got like 80 or 90 or 100 people. And my district was new, at that time, it was Nova Scotia, New Brunswick. And uh, that was when I was in Bathurst. I moved to Bathurst in 82. And we, I came back to St. John's in, with another company in 89. Um, but my budget at that time was probably five or 600 grand a year. And of course, at that time, that wasn't a bad budget. Uh, and well, even today, if you can get it as a junior, that's not too bad a budget when you start off. But uh, anyway, uh, he, this this uh, boss decided what he was going to do to make sure budgets were being adhered to and things. He was going to do a variance. The variance was if you spent if you had a fifty thousand dollar budget, and you spent forty thousand. That was a ten thousand dollar variance. If you spent if you had a $50,000 budget and you spent $60,000, that was still a $10,000 variance. Now, now, going over is usually, okay, that's something. But going under is usually not considered a variance. You don't worry. Any one would cancel the other. So, you, you know, within a budget, you, you'd work it. As, and as a uh, professional geologist, that's what you should be doing. You should be managing your money to the best. So if it wasn't worth it while spending an extra 10 there, but it was worth here, will you go do it, right? Anyway, he took that ability away. And what he said was, and at the end of the year, he added it up and whoever had the best but uh, variances were the ones that got the bonuses, right? 
Well, what I noted very quickly was the ones who got the good variances spent all their time managing their budgets and not friggin' exploring. Mm. The ones that found everything were the guys that had the worst budgets, worst variances, because they weren't spending any time managing their budgets. They were spending time spending the money wisely and finding things. So, you know, it, it was it was just it was silly that what was done. And unfortunately, you know, you you get into those things and it happens. Um, in New Brunswick, for example, we were actually spending Brunswick's, uh, Miranda was spending Brunswick mining and smelting dollars because, because of Brunswick mining and smelting had the mine. Every dollar they spent in exploration was only rude. They could uh, get the value back against their profits. It was 11 cent dollars that, the, that Bathurst Brunswick was spending. Hmm. So, you know, I, the year I got laid off, I had... Uh, the year before, in our budget meetings, I had the number one project in Atlantic Canada. Brunswick came up with 100 grand or something like I said to go drill it. And I said, we're not ready to drill it. We haven't done geophysics. We haven't done proper GCAM. We haven't done this. We haven't done that. haven't done the other thing. Anyway, I said, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We're going to go drill it. And it won't matter. It won't mean anything anyway. And I, what did the other geologist said? Well, you must be really happy with that. I said, no. I said, I'll be happy if we hit something. We don't hit anything. That project's done. Anyway, sure enough, went in, didn't get much, a meter of you know two or three grams or four grams or something like that in the drilling. Anyway, that spring I got laid off. <laughs> you know, what you bring up is a really valid point. Um, people's expectations and, and desire to drill too quickly. Um, and the market feeds into this. People want immediate results. They don't really understand what, what we do and how long it takes to get to that point where you need where you where you can drill and have a successful or meaningful outcome um i i find it frustrating because this the short-term investment mentality is out there yes and and that that is unfortunately one of the big problems with the junior sector but you see that's the thing it shouldn't have been like that with the with companies like noranda that had $20 million, $10 million budgets every year anyway. Well, what they should have been doing is they should have been letting the people they hired to do the work uh, do it. Um, I, another example I have of, a, of an Aranda thing here, and I, I got a lot of Aranda stories, but um, I when I went to New Brunswick, uh, I went, the first thing I did, I think I went there in September and I went down to the government open house, the New Brunswick open house in October, I think. And uh, the, the regional geologist in uh, Southern New Brunswick, Art Rutenberg, was, gave a talk on gold in Southern New Brunswick. And I said, okay, that's very interesting. So I went to see him afterwards. Any chance of me taking me down, showing me some of this stuff the next week? He said, oh, yeah, come on down. I'll take you down. And he took me down and we went down around St. John, New Brunswick, a place called Gordex. A place is actually being explored again right now. And uh, anyway, I went back to 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 the uh, went back and, and started writing it up. Writing, you know, I, we had to do monthly reports, and every month I I'd write it, and I followed up with it, uh, following the company called Gordex. Uh, Peggy Witty Wittek Development was working with them at the time. Uh, that's where I first met Peggy, and at the time her husband Bill. Um, they uh, they were working on that, but the there was another property right alongside of it called Milligan Lake. And that was owned by a prospector, a so-called prospector. I mean, he was—he just was his land more than anything else. 
but similar geology things. So I went back and I, I started writing it up and saying, we should option this and we should do this and things like this. So anyway, um, because of the PESM connection at that time, the next thing I heard, a company called Bullet Energy was going to option the property. They were going to do everything. But that was the next spring. But anyway, my I've been writing this up, uh, talking about what they're doing and everything else. And uh, I got a, uh, I got a, one day, I guess it was in uh, April, May, March or April, the following year. This is the fall before. Uh, one of my, well, the assistant manager came in to me and he said, uh, said, yeah, I've just been talking to Toronto. He said, they're really pissed off. He said, uh, he said, you know, how come you didn't know? Because there was a big story apparently in, uh, in the Globe and Mail about Gordex and this thing in Southern New Brunswick. He said, we're really pissed off. He said that, uh, you know, that uh, we, when we, we're, we're here in New Brunswick, we don't know anything about it. I said, Ian, tell them to read my monthly reports for the last four months and they'll know everything they want to know about it. But that was, but again, that was, that was two things. That was first of all, Toronto. We had to send our monthly reports to go to Toronto, obviously never looked at. It was also our manager and assistant manager who didn't consider it important enough to put it in their report, which went to Toronto, which would have been read, right? So it, it's, that is the type of thing that really causes problem. I came back here to New Brunswick, to Newfoundland in 1989 with a company called the Corona Corporation. I was over here in 88 as a, as a consultant for them. And then I came over in 89 and to 92, I was regional geologist for Corona for Newfoundland and Labrador. So we did a bit of work in Labrador too, but um, it, it was a completely different thing there. I, I reported directly to Toronto. Uh, I, I got involved the, the Pine Cove deposit, which is now called the Point Roos thing with Anaconda Gold. Uh, that, they had 11 holes in at the time, a company called Varna Gold had 11 holes into it. They'd run out of money. They owed a whole bunch of money to the drilling company. And I went in, had a look at it. I called Toronto to my boss and I said, we should come, we should take this. This is a gold deposit here. I can see it. I mean, every hole in the first 11 hit hole, we were, I think it was 200 meters long then. So this is a gold deposit. I said, it may not be huge, but it's a gold deposit. You know, first big one that's been found, or first one that's for any significance found in Newfoundland. And, uh, Anyway, the next week he came, uh, my boss came down and the, uh, the, the uh, vice VPX came down. The two of them came down and we had a deal done the next week. Naranda was drilling the uh, property right next door. They hadn't even looked at it at that point. <laughs> so, you know, it is like it, it just, you've got to have ability. First of all, you got you to have bosses trusting you and saying, okay, I'm hiring you to do a job, go do the job. Right. Here's the guidance, but you know, do it within those circumstances, and then listen to you if you say you've got something interesting. Oh. Yeah, yeah, the person in the field, right? Yep. Looking at the rock. So, how long were you with Corona? Uh, well, it was only three years. It started off with Lacana. Uh, Lacana uh, with Ed Thompson was president of Lacan at the time. I think he resigned about the time I I got involved with him. Like it was '88. That's when we were in Newfoundland first. And that's actually when I got involved with, to the uh, Rambler South property, which is the area where I still have my claims. Um, we uh, flew an airborne down there, uh, and then we found some gold mineralization and stuff. But uh, you know, we we didn't have a. We were doing it was VMS exploration, uh, volcanogenic massive sulfides mainly because looking for another Rambler style uh, deposit. Uh, to date, nothing is nothing like that has been found except in the Rambler 
area itself right out by the Lessee Road. Uh, but there's a lot of gold in that country. And uh, we didn't have a lot of luck. We did a big, we did a big uh, till survey, but we didn't have any luck in following it up. Subsequent to that, I did follow it up. And I, 17 years later, I found the source of, uh, of that big till, <laughs> till thing. And I still have one claim over it. So. <laughs> and, what is the, and what is the source? It's, it's, it's a zone called the SB zone. It is a big structure running up through uh, the Packet Harbor Group. Uh, in a northeast, north northeast direction, or northeast direction, I guess. And right on the south end of it, there was a big till now, and it went about three kilometers. You could follow it. And but the till went like this, and it also had things going like this. The ice direction was thought to be this way, but the ice direction actually was 160, and then there was some movement that way. So it, it's you know, but it took 17 years. It isn't huge, but I think it's we had 17 meters of 1.4 grams. We had uh, one uh, meter and a half and 9.2 grams. Uh, Silver spruce optioned it from me subsequent and did some more drilling on it. We didn't have a lot of luck in the drilling, but I think it does need more work. So, but it took 17 years to, to follow it up. Wow. Four different, four different times with ODM. <laughs> and, and Corona was uh, taken out by Homestead. Uh, yeah, Homestead. Home home yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, I have a, I have a, I have to show you something. This is <laughs> okay. You've actually been, to, you've actually been to the mine. Uh, my husband has. This is his hat. So okay, right, yeah. yeah. He actually got it from the guy that started the McLaughlin mine. Okay, yes, yeah. California. That's. I have. I actually have a, a history book on the, of the home stake, including the talk of the home stake mines. But that thick, I don't know whether you've seen it or not. I, I don't I think know. Nora, I think it was Nora Allman did that, did that book. Uh, um, okay. Anyway, I, I got, I don't know how I got a copy. I think Nora might've given it to me, but anyway. <laughs> incredible, incredible project. Yes, certainly was. Yeah. And Stowell still is, I guess. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's gold in Newfoundland. Yep. This is, this is uh, where I want to go a little bit for right. well, kind of rambling around, but that's okay. We'll come to Rambler eventually. Um, yep. Modern day, extremely rare situation we find ourselves in. Yes. How did yeah. how did we how did we get here? Well, again, it's it's the lack of mineral exploration in Newfoundland and Labrador too. Uh, Labrador is a special case, but Newfoundland is Newfoundland with its geology. It. it it probably is, it's a, well, is it a function? The main function of lack of exploration here is the lack of interest. People in Toronto, Vancouver, central Canada, in anything east of Montreal, I mean, or anything east of Quebec, I probably should say. It, it just, it was, I mean, I've been told that, and I've heard that many times. Uh, I was told years ago, for example, that uh, when, before they found the Brunswick mine, everybody was saying, there's nothing east of Quebec. There's nothing east of Quebec. You're never going to find anything. And then they found Brunswick and they said, well, okay, there's nothing east of Quebec except Brunswick. And then of course now comes Boise's Bay. Well, you know, they, these are all, these are world-class deposits, but People in, in central Canada did not recognize it. And so they, nobody came down and really spent any time here. There were a few people, few companies going around, but they tended to be small, undercapitalized as usual. And, and if you didn't have any luck in the immediate part, you couldn't go and raise any more money, so you couldn't do anything. Um, 
the other thing that was in Newfoundland was because just because of Newfoundland itself, exploration, because of the way Newfoundland was around the, around the water, <laughs> if you weren't close to the water, you really had very little act to act, ability to get inland, to, to do anything. The infrastructure wasn't there. That meant the, the geological mapping, the, uh, the uh, just getting around was, was incredibly difficult. So that meant people didn't do it as much as they would do in other places. And so as transportation got better and, and access got better, then it changed. But the other thing was, of course, because of that, the government said, well, how are we going to get people here? The only way we're going to do that is we're going to give them huge, big concessions. And Sean Ryan talks about this really well. He's got a really good talk on, on that situation about the concession system. And I mean, I lived there. And the, uh, when I came here in 1971, uh, 69, I should say, the concession system was still going. And a matter of fact, the Point Leamington deposit that I mentioned first there, that was actually on a now, what we call a NALCO concession, Newfoundland and Labrador Corporation. It's a little different than Nalcor we have today. But um, anyway, and there was another, we had another one down in La Poyle. And these were huge concessions. They were like 600, 700 square kilometers. And, and you know, they were, there was lots of thing there. But you, you had commitments, but they were minimal commitments compared to what you would have in a, in a staking situation. There were no prospectors here, really no significant prospectors. The, any prospectors that were here, for the most part, worked with, the, with companies. So Brenex used prospectors, for example, British, British Newfoundland Corporation. They were based in Springdale. They worked all over the island, but they worked mostly in Labrador. And at that time, it was looking for uranium and uh, well, the, the Seal Lake area on copper and, and a bunch of things like that. Um, but they, they were sort of one of the first ones that started doing regional work. They started doing geochemistry. They, they do started doing some uh, geophysics and, and things like that. So that was sort of the, the beginning of it. But again, they were using the concession system. Uh, Falkenbridge had concessions. Uh, Texas Gulf Sulphur had uh, concessions at that time. So it was a different situation. Um, once the concession system started moving out and they started saying, you could always state claims, but nobody was doing it. You, know, you had to ground state them, of course, first of all. And it was, it was pretty obtuse how to exactly how to do it. It wasn't the easiest thing in the world to do because I think the government really didn't know how to handle it because it didn't have anybody doing it. Um, so once, once that started getting released and all of those concessions were out of there. The reed lots were another thing that and Sean talks about that too. The reed, reed Newfoundland company put the railway in and the government gave them all these reed lots all along the railways, all over the whole island. And, and those, so that made a difference too. Point Leamington, for example, the boundary deposit was on the south side. It was right on the boundary. It's called the boundary deposit because it was on the boundary between reed lot 234 and crown land. It was staked by Miranda. So... <laughs> And we actually knew that. So we were trying, we had to try and do a deal. Uh, we knew it was going to be there. We couldn't drill it, of course, or anything, but we knew there was something there uh, because it was an airborne and we'd done some gravity in the area. So we knew it was, it was uh, significant. Uh, anyway, they, uh, we did a deal with Abbott to be priced at the time. And that's how we ended, Naranda ended up with, with the boundary deposit. So, but, you know, all of these things, it just made it that much more difficult. Because of that, nobody was looking for gold, too. Uh, gold prices were down, of course, over those years. Uh, as they started picking up uh, and the staking system came in, 
then you started getting people going out and starting to prospect. I'm just trying to think when the first prospecting course, I think the first prospecting course was 19, was in the late 80s, I think. I think they've had 22 or 23. So it would be around the end of the 80s, I guess, when the first one would be. That started, and at the time, they'd be putting out 20, 25 prospectors a year because it was quite interesting. And it was a two-week course given in Stephenville. And I went to the first one, and I went to all except one, all of the ones that they've had. Uh, and they haven't had any for the last five years. Uh, I'm not sure what's going on with the government on that because there is still interest, but they don't seem to want to do it unless there's, you know, 15, 20 or something. They, they've got, you know, get 10, 10 or 12. But anyway, the, the point of it was once the prospectors started getting out there, they had access to these areas. Uh, the geological mapping got a lot better. So guidance was there. The government started doing the lake sediment geochemistry, which was easy to look at because they do a big area and most of the lake sediments for gold were one or less, you know, nothing. And you started getting 10 here, and six over there and uh, 15 over there and stuff. And people would stake those and they'd go in and they'd find them, find some mineralization and it would just keep going from there. So I, I think that's it. You know, it, the exploration wasn't done. And then when, when you started getting the prospectors and the data, then, they, then it started going. Now, that was in the early days. It was, as you said, it was driven mostly by Naranda and a few other companies. And Naranda did some great work. And myself and Kevin and Al Keats uh, benefited from that because the northern part, Trent, the northern part of the Queensway, the Queensway North was... Naranda had the had that had that done. They were drilling on the south side of the Trans Canada, but they didn't drill on the north side of the Trans Canada. In fact, they really didn't even follow up there. And uh, when that ground came open, a long time after Naranda dropped it, because there was a dispute when the ground came open the first time. Uh, Kevin and Al and I and Kevin Al and I staked the ground, so we benefited from uh, from that. Uh, or, and so did Newfound Gold, obviously. <laughs> so and, and amazing things happening in the past few years there really driving what's what's now emerging on on the island i think yeah it is and and it, it i think what people have said you know structure now and, and again i keep going back to sean but i listened to sean's talk at the pdac and his structure is so important in 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 gold in gold mineralization uh so if you recognize a good structure then and and there's indications of gold along it. Then it needs to be looked at it carefully, not just not just oh let's go do a quick run across it and see if we can find anything. Let's look at it properly. Let's do some geochemistry. Let's do some geophysics. Let's do things. Geophysics, unfortunately for gold, is is not that effective because it, it, it's nothing direct. What you're looking for is you're you've got a magnetic feature and you're looking for a mag low where a structure goes through it or something. Well. That, that's that's fine, but it doesn't show the gold is there unless there's geochemistry right on top of it. Then then obviously you've got something something pretty good. But uh, but the geochemistry is is the thing. Till sampling in Newfoundland, I think that has really turned things around. Uh, my first experience with that was with ODM in 1989 when we did this work for Corona in south of Rambler, and I became a believer very quickly on it. And uh, and I've I still believe in it, and I tell everybody that's that's working here to make sure they that's what they should be doing. Um, 
Sean does it a little differently. Uh, anybody that just does analyses, I think they're missing something. Uh, you can analyze for gold intills, you can, but you don't know how far that gold traveled. And uh, once you start looking at gold grains and you can see the distance traveled, how pristine they are, how, how far traveled they are, et cetera. And anybody that knows anything about gold, placer gold is usually flattened. It's just, if you look at a placer gold nugget, it's a nugget, but it doesn't look, I mean, it's, it's gold colored and it's nice but it's nowhere near like the pristine gold that you get in a, in a quartz vein. And, and the little grains that come out of those quartz veins and, and other gold zones, when you're seeing those, if you're seeing you know 90% pristine grains, as ODM says, you're within 100 meters of your source. And that's true, I've seen it. And that's exactly what happened when, in, when we found that one, uh, what's, what, what's now called the SB zone, traced it back, so. Wow. You mentioned Sean's presentation a couple of times at PDAC and one, I was really sorry that's not, wasn't recorded because I think it was one of his best presentations. So I, I have been talking to Sean and I want to get him to redo the presentation on a podcast. I, I think, think that would be, I think that would be really good because he, he lays it out. He, he, he's doing it for, first of all, from a prospector's point of view, number one. And, but he, he's, he's going through, how things happened, why they happened, and the result of those happenings. And, and that's so, so important, especially for other erstwhile prospectors. I had a call, I had a, a call prospector this morning that I've been, you know, helping with, with some stuff. And he had sent me some information and said, what do you think about it? And I, and I gave him some advice, which was in a particular case, I said, I don't think there's a heck of a lot of interest, right? And in, certainly not in the data you sent me. So I said, don't get carried away. And I said, if there's other areas in that, you know, here's what to look for things. Mm -hmm. And that's what you've got to do. You can't get carried away. You can't get fall in love with your property just because you've got it. Yeah. You can't stake too much. That's the other problem. A lot of prospectors make, they'll, they'll stake a hundred claims and they really can only work 10, yeah. you know, that type of thing. But point of it is, is that you've got to keep going and you've got to use what you can use other people's advice too. take, you know, most, most of us, we, we want to find a mine. So if we can help somebody else find a mine, it's still good, you know? So it's part of it. But yeah, I think if we could get that and get that on so that people right across this country can look at it, because it what applies here applies in a lot of cases, even though it's specific to here, applies pretty well everywhere in this country. Yeah, he's, he, you know, listening to Sean in that presentation, and I'm going to get him on here, um, and then listening to Rich Goldfarb, who looks at what's going on in Newfoundland from a, a global perspective, right. they're saying the same things. They're looking yeah. at it from different ways, but it goes back to what you said about the importance of the prospector geologist team, right? Yep. Yeah, it does. The, the regional, I think that's what's, that's the other thing. I, I didn't really get into that a little while ago, but I think until plate tectonics came along, Newfoundland was not, Hank Williams, who was now in the Mining Hall of Fame, uh, he was a prophet memorial. Um, he, he was the one that used plate tectonics to explain Newfoundland as, as a geological entity with the Avalon zone in the east, the Avalon zone going from Morocco over Northeast Africa, right down into the Carolinas in, uh, in the US. The 
North American Craton on the, on the west side there with the uh, with all of that going over to uh, up into uh, uh, UK, uh, Scotland, Ireland, etc., and then going right on down again into the uh, into the Carolinas into into that area and stuff. Everything in between was the what was it was Proto Atlantic Ocean. Every, geologically, we call it the Iapetus. And he, he actually put a thing in, and this is something only Newfoundlanders do. He called it the Harry Hibbs effect. Have you heard of Harry Hibbs? No. no. <laughs> okay, new thing now. Harry Hibbs was an accordion player. And the Harry Hibbs effect was... That's what happened. That's what happened in central Newfoundland. I love it. The Harry Hibbs effect. And, but that, that, it, that is why we have those, we had the, the erogenies we had, the, the mountain building, the volcanoes, the, the fluid flow that you needed, the, the big structures that were running through, the sort of Dog Bay Line, the Gander River, the Gander River uh, complex, the uh, Appleton Fault, the, you know, all of these ones, getting right on down through, down to the Valentine Lake area and, and through. All of these things were as a result of this, this action and reactivation along those things, because it didn't just happen once, it happened over a number, number of years. And I think that is, especially once that one intersection that, that Newfound got, the number one intersection mm -hmm. at 90, 92 grams over, over 19 meters, that just showed what was potentially here. Uh, it's interesting because Marathon was merely going on its way with their five, six, eight, who knows what they're going to have, but they're, they're probably five million mint at least right now ounces on Valentine Lake. I don't think people in the rest of Canada recognize that. Or if they recognize it, well, yeah, it's Newfoundland, what do you, who cares, right? So, it, but they weren't, weren't taking it seriously. But as soon as Newfound came out with those in, that intersection and Sokoman too, the first drill hole of Sokoman drill when they took over Moosehead, Luckily, it was about a week uh, before I became uh, a director of Silkerman, um, 44 grams over 11 meters. Again, you just don't see these type of drill holes. I don't mm -hmm. care where you are. So that, that was actually the first one that got uh, Mr. Sprott involved. He, he was very, very close, very involved with Silkerman as soon as that came. And then, of course, Newfound, Newfound comes on. And just keep in mind, Sokoman's here, Newfound's out here. Now I'm reversed for the yeah, things. But yeah. This is going east for me, right? Okay. Um, the thing is with it, we're we're cross strike. So this is a different, this is a different structure. This is more probably the Valentine Lake structure coming up through. This is the the stuff in the in in the Queensway area, whatever, it is, particularly the Appleton Fault in this case. So it, it's a different, it's a different different type of thing but the rocks are the same they look the same well these are supposed to be silurian these are supposed to be ordovician so you're 100 million years apart something like that but the the mineralization looks the same and both of them look like fosterville wow. so all of a sudden people i think started saying well geez maybe we should look at newfoundland a little a little closer and get involved and of course since then people are coming down and they're finding new stuff and they're and they're just take and they're taking some of the old showings and, and moving on with those two and, and you know, looking at them more, drilling them more, more closely. You got Matador. Right now we have about, about five, five companies right now that have million ounce deposits that I see. You have Matador down the South Coast. You have uh, the boys at uh, uh, Big Ridge down at Hope Brook. 
Uh, you have Valentine, obviously, that's the big one, five, six, seven. I mean, it could be 10 million ounces the way the way it's going because they're still finding stuff. So uh, Maritime uh, out of Kings Point and, and Newfound. So, you know, a few years ago, I mean, our biggest deposit really up until up until Valentine was the Point Pine Cove deposit. It's about and and another pond deposit about both of 200, 250,000 ounces. Wow. So, you know, it just shows what's potential. And as you know, we're drilling, we're drilling with Socom and now we're drilling down on the South Coast and we're drilling a zone, a silica zone that's 12 kilometers long. And our first, we drilled five holes over four kilometers and every one of those holes hit, hit gold. Nobody had ever drilled before. Now, we don't know there's a mine yet. We can't say that, of course, but uh, that's, gonna, that's where we're drilling. We're, and I'm not sure we started yet. This is Socom now. Whether we started right now yet, but we are planning. That's if it isn't, we're we're just about ready to start there. Well, and you know, going back to Eric Sprott, um, just one of the things that one of the reasons I'm doing these podcasts is is I just think this is a fabulous jurisdiction with so much potential and so many resources, um, and, and everybody should just know about it. And uh, but it was. Uh, Eric, I was talking to him one day and he said, um, you have to talk to Tim at Silkman. He's a really good guy. And um, so I ended up connecting with Tim. He's been on the podcast, but um, yeah, amazing. The, 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 and he's introduced me to people and suggests, made suggestions, but amazing talent uh, in the jurisdiction and, and, and completely underappreciated across uh, Central Canada, I think. I'm yeah, well, I, I think that's you know, again, that's a, that's a, a function of where we are. Uh, I, I, my experience in Central Canada has been probably driven primarily by my association with the PDAC, because if it hadn't been for that, and you mentioned the Mining Hall of Fame and things like this, these these situations would not have happened if I hadn't been involved with you know with PDAC. And that's the way it is. Tim and I, uh, I've worked with Tim three or four times in my career. Okay, he worked with Crosshair. I was working with him then. I worked with Corn Cornerstone. He worked with Cornerstone around the same time. So we've crossed paths. And I, and I guess as Tim probably told you, he was the first, he was the one that found the first gold at the Valentine Lake deposit. Yeah, yeah, I, I've actually landed there when, when we, he was, we, we went going by one day in a helicopter and, and he said, you want to land on the, on the, on the discovery of I said, yes, I would. And I actually walked around that day picking up small pieces of quartz with visible gold and about that size. And I built, filled two rock bags of those, of the quartz tourmaline, quartz uh, tourmaline uh, uh, pyrite, QTPs. Uh, no, was it quartz? Yeah, QTP, I think they call it, uh, with visible gold in it. You know, so it's, it, you know, it's interesting when you, when you go and you, you, you've worked with people that long, right? And Tim, uh, invited me to be on the board of Sokoman. I said, well, yeah, it sounds like a good idea. I, I know I like what you're doing and I like how you're doing it. So why not? You know? And of course, you know, we got lucky. I mean, uh, we got lucky in the first hole, but Tim drilled it in the right place. And, and the bottom line was, why did he drill it there? Well, there was, a, uh, I think, an Altius hole there that is half a meter, but it was really high grade, 200 grams or something. So you drill, that's not a bad place to drill, right? Yeah. But nobody else had drilled it. <laughs> So, so much, so much potential, and, and other, and other uh, lithium as well. 
Yeah, well, the lithium, again, that's that's serendipity. Uh, that's an example about how you should, shouldn't do, uh, to, you shouldn't say too, too much when you don't know much about it. I did an interview uh, a year ago, February, with CBC, 15-minute interview, and <laughs> Ted Blades. One of the questions he asked me was critical metals, because he got into that towards the end of the discussion. Critical metals, what about things like, uh, well, lithium and things like that? I said, well, you know, rare earths. I said, yeah, Labrador, I, especially searched, searched minerals there on, on the coast of Labrador, the Straits. I think that's probably one of the best uh, rare earth deposits in Canada. Um, you know, and it needs to be, it needs to be developed, as far as I see. Uh, but he said, what about lithium? And I said, you know, there's little bits of lithium around, a bit of spodumene here and there, especially in the straight shores, we call it, in, uh, in, in between Gambo and uh, Gander. But I said, you know, I, I really don't think there's a heck of a lot of potential for lithium in Newfoundland. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, last year, all of a sudden, I had to eat my words. But, you know, but that's, and I should, I should know better because I've been in this province long enough to know that the, we just don't know what's there. Yeah. You know, so yeah. it, it's, uh, but it, it is one of those things, uh, you know, we're drilling on the lithium. We just announced some more results there, uh, uh, you know, on some of the new stuff, on some of the trenching we've done. Uh, it, it is, it's got a, it's got a good possibility there. You know, I mean, it's early days. We can't say, we certainly can't say we've got a deposit by any means, but uh, the fact we found significant spodumene crystals uh, in these pegmatite dikes means uh, that nobody, and again, nobody else had found them. Now the pegmatite dikes were known, but nobody had sampled them for lithium. So yeah. it just, and again, that's probably a function one of the time and, and two of the, uh, of the uh, ability to actually analyze the lithium uh, and with the packages that were available at the time the, the work was done. So you can't blame people on that sort of thing. So. You know, I, I have a, I have a prediction, and and here's where you maybe like I should take your advice and not not say anything. <laughs> so, but I'm going to make a prediction. Um, hard times are coming. You can't you can't print money forever and not expect inflation to follow. You know, Milton Friedman 101 from the 70s. Um, hard times are coming, and hard times uh, need need hope. And, you know, in the 1850s, it was the California gold rush. In the 1890s, it was Yukon and Alaska. Um, you know, places like Newfoundland and Labrador are going to be the hope in, in hard times and, and have the people that are going to be able to survive hard times. You know, they've proven it. And, and I think uh, the time is coming for jurisdictions like this. And I, and I, I think it's important to tell that story. As it as it emerges, right? And maybe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you know we can go on forever, but I don't think I don't think we can with all this money printing. Well, I, you know, I, I go back to uh, go back to, to, just for example to the typical junior sector uh, when when we when we staked that uh, what is now the Queensway North property, uh, 19, 1998. Uh, we had companies in there. We had United Green. I, uh, Newfound is the sixth company we had had in on that property, uh, and they they optioned it in 2016. They drilled that hole in 2019. So that's how long it took. But what happened? We had some good companies in there before. Joey Freeze was in there with Candente. 
Oh, um, yeah. in, okay. And the second yeah. second group we had, United Carina was in there, the first company. Uh, they were only there a year, but again, they spent they spent six or seven or eight hundred grand or something. So, but but again, they didn't get the results enough to raise more money. Candente was there for three or four years, and they were not just on on our property; they were down south. Uh, in looking at a number of the properties and what's what's now the Queensway South. So they were a little more widespread. But then they saw greener pastures in Peru. So they went there. Uh, then we had uh, Rubicon, uh, Garfield McVeigh. Uh, Garfield was very impressed with it. Of course, Garfield's now in, in Alaska <laughs> with, with his with his things, Constantine. Um, but they, they, they liked it so much that they spun off uh, Paragon. As, as a Newfoundland gold play. Now, again, then they hit, we hit those bad times. You couldn't raise money. You couldn't do anything. So it, it went on. Um, the, they, you know, they, they uh, uh, Paragon had the uh, JBP property. Uh, we owned, we had a, we had rights to some of it, but we didn't, we didn't, we had staked it and we'd optioned it to them and things, but we retained some of the stuff around the main, the main two main showings that were on that area. But, Again, they couldn't raise money. The last, actually, the last company that drilled uh, on the uh, Keats zone on the uh, Queensway North, what's now Queensway North, was uh, Paragon, and their partner was Spot Gold. <laughs> I don't know what Eric even knows that or not, but they and they that zone was known. It was probably three hundred meters long, but I mean, it was it wasn't it didn't have. To, I mean, the biggest grade I think it was seventeen grams over a meter and a half or something, which isn't a bad intersection. But unless it's continuous, you don't go. And again, they ran out of money, uh, and I think the gold price dropped at the same time, right? which is typical, and that's typical for the junior sector. Unfortunately, I can see the same thing as getting back to your what you're saying. I can see that, unfortunately, going back. So some of the juniors that are in the plays now are probably going to have tough, tough time continuing because it isn't cheap, especially if you've got three, four or five hundred claims to maintain those, especially when money gets tight. Um, flow through, you'll probably already be able to raise some money and flow through. But the hard dollars come very, very difficult to do it. And you need those to survive also. So uh, I think I think the gold mining potential in in Newfoundland is huge. As I just mentioned, the five five companies with a, or five properties with at least a million ounces of gold. Uh, I think that's good, and I think the government recognizes that that potential and is working with the industry to try and to try and bring that forward. Um, but I, I think the exploration side will has more to contribute and will contribute more. I still don't think most people in Newfoundland really even know what's going on in the gold sector. And I think these type of things that you're doing is, can help that uh, because people need to know what's out there. I, I tell people all the time, I play badminton with guys and tell them about the gold out in central Newfoundland because they haven't heard anything about it. They, they know nothing about it. Wow. Wow. So, you know, and it could, it's just not, it's not in the press. It'll be once in a while, there'll be something in there, but it just like, it's, it's not, it's not anywhere. They don't, they don't treat it as being a, an important thing. Hmm. And that's unfortunately, that's the way it's been for a lot. And that's not, not, not much different than anywhere across Canada, mind you. Yeah. Agree. Agree. You know, and, and when I think, when I think hard times are coming, I mean, also collectively in the economy, I, I, I think gold's going to be fine. It's, it, you know, with inflation and the price of gold will help drive the money. But I think you're right. The, the model in the sector is going to change. 
it just it's it's hard for a lot of the smaller companies to raise money. But I, I think gold will carry uh, the jurisdiction into the future and, and discovery of, of many other commodities. Uh, I think you know, so too. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I, and I'm I, gonna eat my words when I go back a year from now and listen to myself. <laughs> no, I, I like I said, it it is uh, it is something that's for the future. We've we've been saying I've been uh, I you mentioned some of the things that the other companies thing or things that I've worked with the, the mining and um, mining in L, which is which used to be Chamber Mineral Resources and stuff. I was I was uh, the chairman. I, I was the executive director. I was various things over the years and stuff. Same thing when I was in New Brunswick. I was president of the NB, NBPDA. New Brunswick Prospectors and Developers Association. Of course, I was involved with the PDAC. Oh, and I'm still involved with the PDAC as a past president. So, um, the you know, it, my my job has always been the way I see it. Anyway, is to is to really uh, tell people about Atlantic Canada, not just Newfoundland, but but Nova Scotia, New Brunswick also. And I, I hesitate saying about PEI, but they unfortunately don't have a lot of potential. They may have some copper potential, mind you. I so I won't take that away from them. But you know, on the on the mineral side, anyway. But you know that there is huge potential. Uh, there's a new gold zone being found just north of Bathurst by by Puma Minerals which sounds a lot like what we're dealing with here. And again, it's structurally related along the Rocky Brook Millstream break. Why was it called the Rocky Brook Millstream break? Because it's a major structural zone, right? Um, and only now, last two years, Puma Minerals is finding these things. Now, who did they, what did they do? They auctioned it from a prospector who had found the mineralization first. Wow. And I, I, unfortunately, I don't know his name right now because I hope to see him in the PDAC, PDAC and I didn't. But, you know, that is what's driving us and, and that will continue to drive us. Nova Scotia has some great potential. The biggest problem in Nova Scotia is, is the political situation. They're a green province. And, uh, and uh, you know, while I, I think we all have to look after the, uh, the environment and that, we also have to be realistic about it. Uh, we have to have jobs for people. We have to we have to do things right when we do uh, create mines and that. But uh, you can't you can't have a mine without creating some environmental damage. It just it just doesn't happen. You just have to minimize it and you have to mitigate it and you try to uh, to uh, recover it after the fact. So, but it it can be done everywhere. And I think that is the future for Atlantic Canada, not only Newfoundland. Yeah, I, I watched a video. Um an interview that you did where you talked about uh, environmental impact and people needing to understand the, the value of mine. And I loved your comparison to what if somebody, and, and they're looking back at history. They're not looking at the 50 years of advancement that we've sure. made. And, and I see that in the nuclear industry as well. They're all looking back at the seventies. Meanwhile, it's an efficient source of, of power. Um, I loved your analogy too. What if somebody built a city on a community on an ocean and dumped the sewage into the water? Yeah. <laughs> and wouldn't that be awful? Oh yes, that'd be awful. Well, that's what we did. It's not what we do anymore. Right? Yeah, that's so, right. Yeah. Uh, you know, on, you know, that's, that is unfortunate. We tend to, we, we, we tend to look back on a lot of things and think things aren't, haven't changed if we don't know anything about it. And, and as I just said, 
people don't know anything about it. The only time they hear about it, for example, I think the last thing about one of the things is when the Gullbridge uh, uh, tailing stamp failed way upstream and south above South Pond and in central Newfoundland. Yeah. Uh, you know, they were handing out bottled water way down below South Pond. And I don't think anything ever would have got into, into their water supply, but this is, this is what happens with it. Right. So, uh, and it should never have failed, but I mean, again, there's, unfortunately that was a mine that was abandoned in the eighties. Right. So. Sensationalism sells with the media. They don't, you know, having a, a, a nice mine that employs a hundred people and, and creates a community and, and, and wealth doesn't sell papers. Right. That's right. Yeah. It's, um, it's frustrating. I think that, the mining industry, which includes exploration, um, is the best wealth creator in rural Canada of all sectors. That's it's what drew me into it. It's <laughs> sustainable jobs, transferable skills. It's it's the best. I think. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it is the future for for a lot of these areas. You don't find mines. It, it, it's interesting, though. Having said that, there's a there's a uh, really good uh, system of low sulfidation gold potential uh, right here in St. John's, uh, out on Steepnap Road. Uh, what, beautiful what, what vein. That, what does that mean? Low sulfidation. Low sulfidation would be things like uh, uh, how do you describe them? They're these bonanza grade type things. Uh, like they're mining in Japan right now, like them, a lot of the ones in South America, they're high level. Uh, when they talk about epizonal uh, in, in, the, in the Fosterville style, what they're saying is high level isothermal, which were fairly deep, deep uh, seated uh, deposits. The uh, low sulfidation systems and even high sulfidation systems, they're very close to surface. They're actually sort of marginal to volcanoes. So they're very close to surface and means that for the most part, they're in areas where volcan volcanism is still going. So like Japan, like okay. South American stuff in the Andes and, and that sort of thing. But they're very high grade. That's a big thing. You have bonanza zones that you give in where you're getting these little, little bands of native gold going right through them and things. So uh, the one in uh, Japan is 8 million ounces and counting. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's in rocks that are 2 million years old. So very, very young. Where it's interesting because in Newfoundland, our Avalon zone, we're actually seeing similar zones in 580 million year old rocks. So, but what's happened is they got buried. Now they're brought back to surface. So we're at what we call the paleo surface. Okay. So it's, uh, it's a different thing. So, but there's one there just in St. John's, I, they've actually, there was a hole drilled in what is now a, uh, uh, a subdivision. <laughs> and there's some beautiful rocks. You come to St. John's, go to the geo center. And I, I can show you rocks that we got okay. because I was part of the geo center team getting the, getting rocks. And I, and I specifically got some from there because it, it just looks so good, right? But it, there's gold mineralization there, but it's now under subdivision, right? Wow. Ever be mined, so. But, you know, I mean, that's fair enough. You can't, you can't have a mine everywhere, no matter what it is. And there was never, ever a mine defined as such. It was just mineralization, which, you know, might've might have been. And there's still potential in that area outside of where the subdivision is to have something done. And there are still people working on that. So we'll see. Wow. You know, I, I realize that we've been talking a long time. 
<laughs> and I haven't even I haven't even hit half the stuff I want to talk to you about. So um, I'm wondering if we we should uh, we should talk again. Well, it's up to you. I certainly can. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, I'd love to. Yeah. Um, I, I, there was there's one thing that you said that is an I think an extended conversation. Um, is um, what did you say that when you were in school or when you started in the, in the industry, uh, go out into the the field for extended periods of time, and that was just part of it. You got married on the Saturday, you were back yeah. on Monday. I love, yep. but that's not how it works anymore. And that's an extended conversation I think we need to have because the future of the industry is it has to get back to that. Yeah, and, and that is true, yes, because uh, Newfound's a good example. I mean, the guys are two weeks in, two weeks out. Yeah. You know, that's, that's the way it goes. And you have to. People have to have uh, proper lives. You can't do that. I mean, even then it's tough, but that's not unusual in a lot of industries now. But at least we've caught up with the other industries that did it for a long time. You know, none of these things of being in for a month and then being out for two weeks or or, or a week or wow. something like that, right? So yeah, no, you've got to you, you you're just not going to get good people into it, or you you're going to burn them out and and they'll they'll leave. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, but yeah, I want to talk about how does artificial intelligence fit into this? How does the hmm. database? Yeah, like so much stuff, and and, and I, we haven't even talked about Rambler. <laughs> <laughs> No problem. I'm I'm willing anytime, uh, Janet. No problem. Oh, thanks, Peter. This has been wonderful. I really enjoyed myself, and um, yeah, I really appreciate your time. And look, well, no problem. To- As I said, I'm I'm semi-retired, working harder than ever. Good for you. You know, that's that's uh, you love what you do. Why stop, right? Well, I my my aim now is to find the next gold mine in Newfoundland. So you know, that's what I'm working towards. Good one. I, I love it. I love it. Well, well thanks. We're going to do this again. It's, Sounds uh, good. Yeah, we've been, uh, I, I've been drinking water to keep up with you, but. Um, <laughs> I think I should do some of that myself. You just go and go. <laughs> Thank you. And, and thanks everyone for joining us. And, you know, uh, Peter is coming back again. Uh, but thank you for your time today. And please join us again at Kissing the Cot. Thank you. Thank you. It was uh, enjoyable. I like it's I always like going back over past uh, things. Some are some good, some bad, but it's uh, that's that's the industry. Yeah, it's uh, I hear you 100 percent. But stay tuned. More to come. (laughs) Take care. Thank you. You too.